2: This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Tom lived in Western Poland, in an area that had been part of Germany until the end of World War II. He describes how his grandmother settled in this area and the strangeness of taking over formerly German houses and apartments. Tom's grandfather on his mother's side was a communist activist who worked for the Polish security services, which created some tension as Tom's father had dodged the draft into the Polish army. Tom describes his childhood in some detail, highlighting the contrasts of life in Cold War Poland versus some of the other Warsaw Pact countries, such as how the Boy Scouts and the Catholic Church managed to coexist with the communist government. He is 11 years old when the free trade union solidarity is made illegal and martial law is declared by the Polish communist authorities. We end with the poignant story of his grandmother's experiences as a forced labourer in Germany during World War II. I'm delighted to welcome Tom back to our Cold War conversation.
0: I was born in Jawor, a little town in southwest Poland, actually. uh, in the city of Legnica, Wrocław, which is the uh, lower Silesia region in Poland, bordering with Czech, today's Czech Republic, and Germany. So I had like 100 miles to Germany or 50 miles to uh, Czech Republic, but area which were Polish from 1945. So you st- it's it's still a bit you know different, and you felt a bit different than you know let's say Poland proper
2: so this area was part of Germany uh before nineteen forty five and then in nineteen forty five the German population were evicted, forced out, and forced to leave these areas because the area was going to become part of Poland under the uh, Potsdam agreement.
0: Yes, correct. Uh, it's uh, absolutely right. And reason why it's worth to talk about this as well is, till 70s, uh, people who lived there, who were born there, you know, after war, I mean Polish people, they still were convinced or in mindset that this area, this region will be back to Germany. So they only temporary there. There was no mindset like, okay, we stay this forever, it's ours, or it's our homeland now. It was always kind of temporary, you know, feeling in this, you know, approach. So no one cared about building left or heritage left by Germans. It was just like, let's grab as much as you can because tomorrow might be evicted again.
2: Were people just given flats or houses to, to move into? Were they just allocated these buildings? And inside these buildings, had the previous occupants just left stuff
0: behind in them? In many occasion, yeah, I think, yes. You know, we're talking about uh, late 40s, early 50s, but I can only repeat stories from my grandparents. Uh, my grandma from my mother's uh Side, she was uh, forced labor in Germany. So on the way back to Poland, she was walk, you know, walking literally on foot to Poland, several hundred miles. And in this, when she approached this area, you know, still halfway to her home, uh, she met some, let's say, Polish communist commissar. In it was June forty five or something. And she was like young, 18s or 90s, years old. And he convinced her, Oh, don't go back to central Poland, you know, to home. It's still poor area. It's still, you know, poverty. It's look, there's really rich, you know, rich houses. Everything's there, uh, mechanized uh, agriculture, convincing her to stay, you know, in this newly ac- acquired, you know, area. So she So she looked around, she knew Germany from her forced labor and she spoke some, you know, German. And she decided, okay, I'm going to family, just let them know I'm still alive and I'm coming back to this area because there's opportunities there. And she met the, you know, her future, you know, my grandad's future husband in 45. But it was like loads of people were just following kind of propaganda let's you know settle these rich areas it's just like we know this from movies from hollywood movies like going to the west in the us you know in america you know there's some opportunities some rich lands that you can just colonize and this was quite similar you know in terms of movement Lots of people especially those who were kind of poverty are still affected by war, they just, like, move. And many and people try to escape from prosecutions, from Soviet prosecution, because, you know, when you live in close environment, like a village, uh, everyone knows, you a know, small town, so you, they know. Uh, so you try to escape, like, pointing out, oh, he was in the, you know, patriotic movement or something, anti-Soviet. So they try to change, like, drop identity, go to the west part of newly acquired area poland grab new identity and live you know their life like (laughs) different way so we've mentioned
2: briefly there your grandmother who else was in your family
0: My grandmother, I said she met, you know, her future husband in this area, Uh, her future husband, my granddad, he, as a young chap, 17 years old, he joined this Polish communist uh, army, which was created by Soviets. And he was in fourth division of, you know, Polish People's Army at the end of the war on 45. And he finds himself in the position when suddenly communist uh, government decide that one of these divisions has to be converted as a security forces, like uh, Russian has KGB, GR, GRU. Those people suddenly became this interior minister of interior affairs. They they were not in military. They used to call it Urząd Bezpieczeństwa, UB a future SBS, Służba Bezpieczeństwa. And first allocation was in these Western areas. He was a uh, secure industry staff. So he didn't join the security forces, but he became one, involuntary. And because he was good money, he came from very poor, poverty, family background uh, near Warsaw. So, so he said, OK, I'm staying here, I'm doing career within this he just got up to some point when he was even chief for some local region like let's say or, you know of town or this security in 70s as i remember and he retired early but yeah he chose he believed in communism because he was before second world war communist activist he worked for oh, very hard uh, in Industrial area for nothing. So he was like activists, you know. Let's say this time, and he believed, you know. I remember he really had massive breakdown, mental breakdown, when in 1980, uh, Solidarity movement started. He couldn't believe that it's 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 finished, it's collapsed, it's communist idea is totally uh, bankrupt and everything. And soon after he died he couldn't bear this you know
2: i can imagine uh sort of your whole world is falling apart
0: irony is he was really true true believer you know uh and very few people actually were true believers in poland you know most of them who actually create this you know system they were opportune they were were the fo- who has the power who has the money and they were like following this you know trail uh, so there was no really any ideology behind a part of you know, uh, power grab and money grab and, okay, so this is my <laughs> one part, another part was my dad who came to this western area you know and because he tried to avoid conscription <laughs> in six, 1968 I, f- I think it was 67, 68 uh, wherever you lived, you had to register with authorities. Your stay there. So, by doing by changing places of work and uh, living, uh, my dad, because it it was it some bureaucratic process. So he that way he tried to avoid conscription, be- just like buying time, because each time it took some few months. Then after these few months, okay, moving further, and the same process again and again, and he nearly managed to extend this for three years. Really, jumping from uh, all over the western part of Poland. You know, he was in Bydgosz, uh, which is north uh, in the west, some near Poznań. Finally, he ended uh, with Jawor, where you know I was born. Uh, he met my mother and. Because because he met my mother, he decided, okay, I like this woman, and he stayed there. And because he extended so much, uh, Army couldn't conscript him anymore because he was too old for conscription. So they decided to put him like NCO school or some, you know, uh, kind of course training, which is six months to nine months, and you were like very low grade of NCO because he in between he was uh, graduating electronics and stuff so they decide, okay we, we're not going to put you in total, you know, you know, army boots in barracks as a proper conscript we're going to put you in some army school, NCO school uh, you're going to have easier life there, but we're still going to get you. Yeah, he did his one year, no, less than one year, nine month service Um and then he was called a few times for trainings he never was in the army as you know we know the conscription i think you you said to me that he was,
2: was involved in the invasion of czechoslovakia in 68
0: uh, they were riding btr with some sort of electronic equipment i mean btr personal carrier uh, they were told it's gonna be friendly stuff, they're gonna to, you know, exercise trainings in Czechoslovakia. But when he found himself there in Czechoslovakia in Olomouc region, he said people were really uh hostile towards them, which they was surprised because they thought, okay, we are from Poland, we always anti Russians, why you don't like us? Uh, we we have, but Czechs didn't, you know, just people from Czechoslovakia were really uh, not talking with them, not selling them stuff in shops. Uh, he said it was very difficult, uh, even when they ask for direction when they go. So they always give in wrong direction or totally misleading. Uh, Locals used to in the evening even steal things of them that they have to guard uh, their vehicle they have to always be on alert but not be robbed you know of stuff uh, feeling that you're not welcome you you go away as soon as you can
2: so what what was his his family's background? Were any of them members of the party or fans of the uh, the communists?
0: No, actually, it was opposite way. Uh, his granddad and, you know, all this part of the family were, was very p- patriotic, let's say this way. Uh, before war, my grand, great-granddad and granddad were activists of Polish Socialist Party, w- which dates back to the Tsarist even, you know, uh, time uh, so now you know five or something. So they were always, but because they were carpenters and joiners, so private business. When the Russian came, uh, they tried to survive. So they uh, obviously part. There was only three parties allowed. You can join, uh, communist let's say, Communist Party in brackets, because they were not real communists. Uh, Anyway, PZPR, uh, Polska Zjednoczona Partia Robotnicza, and uh, one orientated for people working on the land, agriculture. And the third one was orientated for small business, because small business was still allowed in communist Poland. So they tried to grab an uh, intelligentsia, like Russians say, so people who uh, working in school teachers, uh, a kind of uh, people who work in universities, giving lecture, all the people who write books, I mean, literally, uh, people who uh, do research, scientists, uh, that kind people of brain, I would say. So, and this party was... Uh, trying to target them, which was called Democratic Party. They never had a chance to get any big, you know, fraction of uh, votes or something, because uh, every election was fixed, you know, in terms of results. But they always were guaranteed like 10% of their, you know, seats in parliament uh, to just please, you know, intelligent, you know. So my grand parents from father's family they decide to join this party for peace of mind because they want to run business you have to be part of let's say system some somehow to be allowed to function in this system so uh, they did uh, but anyway regardless of this they were still very active members of local uh, community then in Central Poland, they were active members of church community, Catholic. So my dad, from this background, he was running away from Conscript because he was full of the I'm not gonna serve a communist, you know, army or something. So uh, my granddad actually he was ideal. No, 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 your son go try to this trick and maybe you avoid Conscript and come back. But my dad never come back. He was stay in the West because we used to call it West uh, for some reason the part where i was born is always called we in poland we used to call it west like it was never properly bonded with rest of poland even you know um when i was you know in my 20s with colleagues from different parts of poland when i was in uni we used to always uh, when we're talking about so uh, other parts of poland where you used to have regional names but once you talking about former German name, uh, German land, uh, most common you know word for this was West. Oh, you are from West or something. There was no Silesia, no Pomeran, you know Pomerania, Pomeran, or other areas. No, you are from West, uh, or oh, you you in West something. It was like did some kind of mental division between. Uh, people from other parts, you know, Poland, and people who live in this, you know, after 45, you know, acquired region.
1: Investors like you have a problem. Today, most portfolios only include stocks and bonds. While it's currently performing, It's a strategy that Goldman Sachs predicted in 2023 to underperform for the next decade. Luckily, our sponsor Masterworks Advisors focuses on a non-traditional alternative asset, helping over 15,000 investors diversify a portion of their overall portfolios with blue chip post-war contemporary art. Over 60% of wealth managers surveyed by Deloitte have already integrated art into their wealth management offering. And by signing up at masterworks.com advisors with code free, you can talk to a registered investment advisor representative who deals exclusively with this alternative asset class. So schedule a free same-day advisory call with Masterworks Advisors just by going to masterworks.com slash advisors and using promo code free. That's masterworks.com slash advisors promo code free. This advertisement relates to the provision of advisory services by Masterworks Advisors LLC and is not intended to offer or solicit investment in any securities and is not investment advice. Masterworks Advisors is affiliated with Masterworks.
2: Your grandfather, the true believer, must have been overjoyed that your daughter had married into this family.
0: Tell you what, when I was skied, I, you know, there was some weird thing, but you never, you, I didn't really pick up tension within my family, especially when it was, uh, in terms of like big family uh, meetings, and then. Within time, I realized, hang on, we had no such, a part of two or three big occasion. We didn't have such meeting. So if one of one grandparents came to visit us, others stay far away and opposite way around. They, on only just two or three occasions, they met together. I think on a wedding of my parents, obviously. But later when, you know, kids... Two or three. We used to go for like holidays, stay for one week with one grandparents or another. Uh, but I can't remember they actually meeting each other together. And then and then it popped in, you know, after some times, hang on. The way they talk, oh they they slag, you know, slagging off each other, like oh this communists some uh, very you know nasty words. They they do something to our family. So my grandpa is patriotic. Oh, uh, my grand- grandson, let's go to see uh, like War Cemetery from 1939, our truly proper army, you know, when we had this campaign and we lost to, you know, Nazi Germany. Oh, let's, you know, that's kind of trying to do some patriotic stuff with me. Uh, I was still, let's say, seven, eight years, nine old, then I was going on uh, same, let's say, same year, same uh, summertime to my grandparents, uh, other side. That one retired, you know, security forces. He loved hunting. So they settled in a local village near town where I was born. So he loved hunting and a little farm going, you know, with, with his friends. And they were going on hunting and then, oh, okay, so he tried to b- bribe me with, Oh, grandson, let's go and shoot some, you know, rabbits or, you know, but when he talked about other side of family, Oh, they posh starts, you know, nose up or something. They don't know real life. You're going to learn proper real life. They stay away, you know, from each other path. So actually, we, I never witnessed clash between them. A tough balancing
2: act there for your uh, parents, but uh, it sounds like they reasonably successfully carried it off. Your mum and dad, what, what did they work?
0: My mum uh, was a teacher, was quali- qualified in uni as a teacher. And she was a teacher at the beginning of her career for a few years, in the early 70s. But uh, later, she chose career path. So became like inspector of education with local authorities. And he she just stepped up the ladders, uh, career ladders. In the end, she was head of the office uh, of education in local district. And she was doing inspection uh, programs and stuff. So she retired in mid-90s, I think. Mid nineties or late nineties, something like that. But she was always within education, uh, and my dad, well, f- because of his hobby or something, he was uh, at the beginning after high school or college, uh, electrician, but or electronic. I can't remember. Uh, how to say radio, electric, building, repairing radios, stuff. Then uh, he did po- uh, graduate within uni to be, you know, proper elect. Like, but after he had like very, career was very, uh, not smooth or easy, you know, going because of this. Uh, First, he started this sky uh, school or college with electronics. Then he tried to avoid conscription. So, a few years he uh, he had break within. He still was doing job as qualified, uh, let's say, technician, because he he didn't get full qualification because he had to, let's say, avoid the conscription. Once this uh, army business. Uh, Finish. he could uh, finish his educa- full education. So finally he was graduated as an engineer with uh, doing r- like radios, televisions, and in the end he worked in a Polish factory who was building uh, stereo stuff, I mean stereo sets, Diora uh, in Dzerzhonyów and uh, Jawor. Yeah, we had another, it was a big factory, big business in uh, still communist Poland. But after uh, open markets, it collapsed because it was poorly managed. Uh, So in terms of uh, technical stuff, they were doing quite well, well, good project, but they couldn't cope with, uh, let's say, modern management when markets that opened in early nineties, they couldn't sell their stuff because they were still learning how to manage.
2: What is your earliest childhood memory of that time?
0: few times being on holidays, seven years old, eight years old uh on the holidays with my parents uh it was holidays when you were granted, let's say, authorities by profession. Like mom, it was from mom's side. Uh, this minister of education used to grant you uh, some kind of vacation holidays. Let's say holiday center. Uh, in a lake, Polish Lake District, Missouri, or seaside town or something. And we used to go to the lakes, you know, in our small Fiat 126 whole family for, well, me, my brother, who was like two, three years old, so small, small little baby, and two adults, and luggage for two weeks, and (laughs) how we could squeeze this in one, you know, Fiat one to six, and it was quite new, Uh, again even s- vehicles you get only when you are al- when authorities were happy uh, were happy with you because our fa- uh, our first you know it was second car uh, but that one first i remember properly uh was like you got voucher from uh, authorities and you could buy uh the vehicle from again, authority control uh, vehicle factory, Fiat in Warsaw. But you have to as well have your own money. So not only you had to, you know, get your money for purchase, but you couldn't purchase without this extra voucher. Even how you can purchase vehicle, you know, new vehicle from official, let's say, way, it was still controlled by the authorities in 70s, I remember. The uh, same happened with our allocation of our flat. Because I remember when we lived still with my grandparents in f- three-bedroom flat, so you have two uh, adults, two grand grandparents, two another adults, my parents, me and uh, my little brother, and all in three bedroom flat because there was no other way. And my mum did a petition, you had to write petition or something asking, like, if you're lucky enough, you you could be allocated fresh flat in big block. Of how you know uh, floods. Usually there were ten stories blocks of floods. Uh, very small, but it was. Uh, so we live in big you know area when it's lots of people lived uh, block of flood several tower blocks of floods, and I remember it was my childhood, and with other kids of the of, you know you just socialized yourself. That no one actually could control you. I, I mean, no one bothered control. You just grown up on a, you know, uh, not on a street, but in this area between of But there were still buildings, so we were going, in the, def- wandering around, you know, with gang, Let's say gangs of uh, five, six, ten kids, the same age. I mean, eight to ten years old, trying to. Uh, occupies ourselves. There was no really much... When they're building this area, you know, they forgot always about a football pitch or any playground area. They were the last one to build. We just used everything we had as a playground, really, and that no one then been hurt. It's unbelievable, but I can't remember any nasty story that anyone got hurt. We literally, we were played with fire, uh, literally bonfires starting in some weird places. We were told many times off by adults, you know, chasing us around or some. but no one got hurt. So you were, it's like living on a building site. Yes, uh, yes. On the beginning, it was early 70s and early 70s, Poland was very quickly trying to try to develop. It was... Uh, time when Gerek, uh, first secretary of the uh, Communist Party, tried to catch up with Western Europe. So on the loads of loan money, borrowed money, he tried to to jump in terms of quality of living. And in every, loads of towns, cities, they got this new, State areas with block of flats because they were quickest and easiest to build uh, accommodation for people. Uh, they bought, I think, technology of block of flats from France or something, but obviously quality was d- different. So uh, soon after, I think in eighties, people realized the living in this block of flats is hell. A quality of finish, was not there. Uh, we, uh, ev- whoever wants to live in comfy uh, situation like nice uh, flat had to finish it uh, him- himself, which cost lots of money. When they finished building, there was no cleanup. So you still had like left, left over from building site. Even some machinery, when they broke down, broke down and gone rusty there.
2: I was interested you you talking about the the Fiat because this was the Fiat car because this was the Polski Fiat that was built under license in Poland, wasn't yes.
0: it? Yes, yes. Fiat 126, let uh, Let's say in Toric everyone could afford because the uh, official price was not uh, set up high, so it was affordable. But as I said, a part of money you had to hand this like voucher from authorities to purchase one and uh, there was always black market on this and I remember one of my uncles was not involved in black market but used this way to quick and extra money Uh, because he got voucher, he got money but he didn't need car Uh, he hadn't got a driving license so even you know it was but he got this voucher so first thing he he grew up uh, our granddad they went uh, to buy you know new uh, fiat uh, and and the same day they went on this uh, place was like a market you know like you have market town once a week with groceries something so geodo was like market but for vehicles so I think it was the same day of following day as as they purchased they went there and and sold this fiat i think it was one to ten you know this money so let's say if they they bought for one thousand they were selling for ten thousand you know it was the difference between official price and real one real market price
2: that's a, a great return on that
0: um what what was your school life like tom well it was like Two different schools I I was attending. Primary school I don't remember quite well uh, because I hated. Uh, we used to. It was seventies. We had to wear, uh, let's say uniforms like in, you have in British school uniforms. So and. Um, In the 70s, in Polish school, like following Soviet model, I mean Russian model, we had to wear uniforms in primary school. We used to have blue, as I remember, blue tops with white collars. These uniforms were made by state factory with very poor quality. So they were like itching. We hate this. Collars were stiff. I'm talking from perspective of eight, seven years old, you know, kid. And on top, when we approach 80s, when it was really shortages of everything, these uniforms start to become like nylon, you know, and they were bloody flammable, proper flammable stuff. <laughs> See, it was instantly you can just be like torch, you know, if near, you know, life flame wow. anywhere. So they were very danger. And f- after a few accidents, I think, even in our school, not that anyone was badly hurt, but it was quite spontaneous combustion with big flames. And then suddenly, because it was like quick flame, and then uh, totally extinguished because there was nothing left, <laughs> actually, to to burn. But after this, uh, w- w- they stopped making this uh, Uniforms, and we allowed having our own tops, you know, I mean, jumpers, whatever, whoever wants to wear, on the condition that it must be navy blue. But there was no regulation anymore about how it looks in terms of fashion, you know, pockets and stuff. Uh, we still had to, in this primary school, wear something uh, navy blue on the top. And that was kind of agreement because even state couldn't provide you with proper garments, you know, to wear. But it was first time when I felt proper state uh, oppression. So it's the first time as
2: a kid you you felt the weight of the state?
0: Uh, Well, you know, in quite a funny way, you know, but really I didn't like these uniforms and... Uh, we love uh, with few other you know my colleagues because we used to you know stay to play football after something we really hate them they were really not properly fit so you they were just restrict your movements Uh, when you just you know let's say such young, you just even jumping over the fence to neighbors, you know, fruit uh, tree to grab some apples, you know, steal apples from the neighbor and back. And these uniforms you had to wear, well, when you had to wear, we try to take them off instantly after school. But sometimes uh, when it was very hot weather, uh, you had nothing else, so you have to keep them. And they were restricting your movement. Even playing on a, you know, Football pitch after school, it it was sweaty actually you sweat like hell in them, and I'm talking about playing after school because again people need to understand that in Poland most of the parents were working, uh, uh, working class. No one could afford actually uh, childcare, and there were very few places in uh, state organized uh, nurseries or pre- preschool. Uh, centers uh, they were stayed organized they were cheap they are affordable but not many of them and they were working only till again till three o'clock afternoon but you when you have school which finish four sometimes we've even finished five o'clock in primary school literally because uh, so in soviet type Of education, you have, there was, we were so busy, we're so overloaded with different courses across the day. So, like, so sometimes we finish five o'clock in the afternoon. And then we always try to find this little one hour at least for our self activity. People were running free uh, around the school area, this football pitch was in the school. And our parents were working till five, four, five, sometimes six o'clock. So we were not looked after by parents. We have we had we looked after ourselves or neighbors. And uh, we used to stay at school ground, play the different, not only football. There were different plays. And suddenly voices in the street: "Oh, Mark, come home! Your your dad is back." You, you know. The neighbors were shouting, you know, you, you could hear shouts on, on a, you know, across the street, your name and your mom's calling you, go there. And you, you live like four or five streets further down. But all this, you know, shouting post or shouting calls, you know, came to you just to call if it's time to back home.
2: was there anything like the Young Pioneers in yes. Poland that you had to join?
0: Yes. Uh, there was Scouts movement uh, which tried to keep us independent from the state, from the communist uh, uh, authorities. But they have to compromise always. So uh, in the end the scout movement was kind of compromised. Uh, They pretended to be not really pro-state, pro pro authorities but uh, they were, when they were needed, or some uh, like official celebration, something, they were the pioneers, like Soviet-style pioneers that you have. No, it They did. I think it was there were attempts in fifties, but it didn't go on. It wasn't really successful, so they stopped. There was another uh, when I was in college in eighties, late no, second late eighties. There was movement. What do I say? Friends of. Towarzystwo przyjazni polsko Polsko-Radzieckiej, which is a society of friendship, of Polish-Russian friendship. They try to make it, you know, let's say, movement from uh, more able, capable, older, you know, uh, kids, uh, teenagers. Uh, and the impression that it's... Uh, Keep the friendship between our two nations, Polish and Russian. Uh, usually, you were, they were try to not conscript, but uh, persuade you to join uh, when we had foreign language lessons, which Russian was mandatory as a one foreign language in Polish school. So, bless them, teachers of Russian language had this uh, task to. And list as many as they could, uh, f- let's say, members of this society uh, under different promises, because people were promised. If you join, you could have uh, visits to, uh, I told you, uh, of, uh, well, neighborhood uh, town Legnica, there was uh, HQ of Soviet forces. Uh, and it was like Berlin uh, divided by in half by wall, and there was Russian perimeter. So they promised that if you join this Polish-Russian friendship society, you could go with you're gonna get special pass and go to the shop in this Russian, you know, Soviet perimeter because their shops were mint. They were big. We had empty shelves in the late eighties. They had everything on the shelves. So having passed the russian perimeter in Legnica in this uh, quarters it was a big win because you could buy loads of stuff there and then either for your consumption or to sell on the black market another one maybe in the future you can go to uh, soviet union for holidays to crimea crimea was the uh, uh, magnet you know for Pol- you know polish let's say members of this society, because yeah, we we talk we about uh, black, seaside, black Sea side, Black Sea seaside uh, f- exotic fruits, uh, oranges were still exotic fruits even in eighties in Poland there were shortages there were not many even uh, Russia could provide them from I don't know Georgia or they own rep- Republic but there were still shortages in Poland. So were you saying there that they the young Pioneer
2: sort of concept never took off in Poland.
0: No, Uh, scouts they provide in Poland, it was like two levels for kids, which were Zuchy, they call him, so it was like up till 10 years old, and then once they reach uh, Central Edge, they could uh, join or be promoted to the proper scouts. Uh, and these proper scouts actually uniforms everything. Our scouts will look like this, let's say paramilitary, paramilitary something like that. Uniforms, uh, khaki beige. I mean, in in the West,
2: uh, in the UK, certainly we had the Cub Scouts, which was the young for younger kids, and then we had the proper Scouts, which was for for older kids. So it sounds like there was a similar set up to uh, what you had in Poland.
0: What I've learned, what I've been told, because uh, I was with scouts for two or three years, but I wasn't really interested in them. Uh, they were too uh, too much organized for me. I was always wondering my paths, and it wasn't for me. But I remember it was, we been told, it was on the vision of Baden-Powell Scouts were very popular because they tried to position themselves not as a state organization, but as independent. Uh, They had to do lots of deeds for, you know, authorities, but they always tried to sell themselves as not controlled by authorities. So for that reason, they were popular. How much was
2: the church... Uh, the Catholic Church and influence in your day to day
0: life—quite uh, a lot and nothing really. It's it's very dif- difficult to explain because, from one hand, in, in terms of how much uh, as a, as a lot, I was uh, raised in Catholic faith, and I was baptized, and then all the sacraments. Uh, being, you know, active member of church. I mean, following to mass, you know, Sunday, something uh, was quite a statement of uh, defiance to the system. They had sometimes meetings after church as a community, Uh, officially as a community, but they were talking about this kind of anti-communist stuff. So church was involved in this anti-communist movement to some extent. Me was raised in this Catholic way. It's because my grandparents from my dad's side. But on the other hand, the same grandparents who were, you know, devoted Catholics, they teach me that it's me who has to have like freedom of thinking. Uh, I need to need keep open mind and never follow narrow path of thinking because. Uh, They were grown, they grown up, my grandparents in the area when they, you had as well Lutherans, you had uh, Czech brethren, you had uh, some other faiths and Russian Orthodox, so, and uh, Jewish before Second World War, so they grown up in seven religion, you know, seven different rites of Christianity and religion, so they were quite open-minded. And I, even with, within my family, I think uh, some of my family from my grandparents are actually Lutherans, not Catholics. And they were say, I was on the back foot with authorities in uh, from 80s. I was listening to, you know, punk music. As we, we're talking about 83. Uh, then I stopped going to the church because... I thought, why I should go every Sunday? What the heck? Uh, I have different ideas for spending Sundays. No one's going to tell me how I'm going to live. But I didn't go to the state-organized, you know, uh, celebration and stuff. So 1st of May, you know, when we always have to celebrate, I used to be, you know, wandering around town, but never, you know, looking, you know, member of this, always finding excuse for my school, because you had to be at school, You have, it was mandatory, but my mum was good, and that just writing, you know, notes when I'm sick or whatever, not to go there. Were your parents
2: involved in Solidarity? Solidarity was a free trade union authorised by the Polish Communist Party after widespread worker protests in the Baltic shipyards. In December 1981, Solidarity was made illegal as martial law was declared.
0: Yes, at the beginning, when it broke out, my mum joined, my dad joined, but my mum dropped membership of Solidarity when on December eighty-one, Martial law and, and everything was declared. Uh, some mum... Uh, renounce her membership of uh, Solidarity because she had to to keep her job anyway uh, because that was pure, pure through the teacher's ranks. Most of the che- teachers were members of Solidarity at the beginning of movement till Martial declared and then those who still were members of Solidarity were arrested um using arrested word officially it was called intent but it was uh, it was proper arrest under pretension that it's not
2: i can imagine they were saying well you're under protective custody or something like
0: yes that. but you know but it it wasn't different to proper arrest really so there was no trial You're you're just held yes and many of teachers were those who didn't renounce their uh, solidarity membership. They were kept there. Some people were stayed there for several weeks, some for several months, and I know at least two persons who were uh, done 18 months terms. Wow. What about your father? He was he was member of solidarity, but he didn't drop membership. It's because they stopped doing anything Uh, just for a few weeks. It was on total lockdown, countries on total lockdown. And my dad was working with this uh, state control uh, service of radio stuff, TV stuff, and uh, that kind of thing, because they become under army, let's say security forces uh, control so they were like reorganized, split. And some parts, uh, some people from his team were shift moved in other area and he couldn't, you know, uh, meet with other colleagues and stuff. He was never a proper fighter. He was member, but uh, he prefers like sitting on a couch or sofa and watching TV than, you know, doing any... Uh, mass protest on the streets he never renounced this membership but then it just like they split them and nothing happened
2: now you're 11 years old I think when martial laws declared
0: Uh, what do you remember of that period the most uh, it's winter well one of the best winters I I remember Uh, I mean proper white Loads of snow, not too cold. I mean, not too cold, it's like minus 10, but bear in mind, I'm Polish, so for me, not too cold, it's minus 10, uh, with quite dry weather, so you didn't feel this cold. Uh, absolutely beautiful. Uh, and a few days before this, uh, Marshall Cloud. a few days before 13th of December, uh, we had proper snowfall, so it's the reason why I'm... Uh, because everything was covered with proper few inches of snow, white, nice, tidy, looked really well. We lived uh, by 1881. Uh, uh, it was our n- new second house because we moved from Blogger Flats to this uh, area. Uh, we lived v- next door to place of uh, police, where the main building of police, local police and security office, uh, security services uh, was in our Yavor, in our town. It was four four-story building, big, massive uh, building in the 1930s by Germans for the same purpose, you know, for German police and I think security forces or something. So proper brick brick building with a backyard full of workshop garages and stuff. You could look like a fortress, really, from outside. And we lived in two, three buildings for the family or for the staff working there. So, in fact, this police building and our building where we lived was, uh, in the past, it was like one part of complex and access to our buildings when we lived uh, was only through the backyard through the you know uh, of the police and it was not a problem uh, we used to say hello even you know they had own canteen so sometimes mo- even my mom was sending me to the canteen because when there was when she was late and that was late so to have dinner there uh and stuff. But then 30, you know, 30 December, and early morning, we got up and we couldn't catch a program, which we used to on TV. It was Sunday, so we were off school. So we went to dad, We, know, oh, dad, it, you know, you, you know how to TV, it's not, not working, no working. And dad said, come, hang is it's working. It must be working because there's nothing wrong with TV. And then he just changed, because it was channel number two, we, we had two channels. Uh, he changed it, number one, and it was official declare of this uh, martial law by General Jaruzelski. And everyone was just like silence at home. My mom, oh, it's going to be war, it's going to be war. We were convinced that it's, it's really war. It's happening. We're expecting should some something shooting gonna happen. And we look through the window and the plenty of personal armor armored cars, I think it was Scots, they used to call Scots or BRDMs and outside on our street. Like five or six of them. And plenty uniform, I mean field uniform, uh, we thought soldiers. We thought at the time we thought they were soldiers because there was something like ZOMO, which is a motorized reserve of police forces. And they were, they were dressed and looked like proper army. And they were equipped like army. I mean, this uh, armored, you know, uh, carriers and vehicle carriers and stuff. And, the, and it was them, actually. They were properly trained to suppress any protest and stuff. But it was lots of them, like like ants, through the window when we look. But then uh, they disappeared. These vehicles just dispersed about 11, 12 o'clock. they gone. And it was quiet. All over town was quiet. And on TV only repeated this, you know, big uh, talk about uh, declared martial law and stuff. So with brother, we decided, okay, let's play. Uh, on the, in the, with the snow, we took our sledges, and as we we used to go to the backyard of uh, the police station because in a the backyard they have a uh, ramp for the for servicing vehicles and it was big ramp, and we used this ramp as an artificial hill to you know run sledges down. It was always every year we used to do it minimum five, seven of us, they went with sledges, you know, to play, we, we treat the backyard of police station as a playground. And to our surprise, within one night, they managed to build a fence around this police station. And there were uh, soldiers uh, who were fend- fending this fence and telling us to bug off, uh, not to mess with them. They were strange strangers not local because every local police and um, knew that kids from this neighborhood so we come back home and we said that we couldn't get there we couldn't play because the fans my dad looked through the window yes it is my mom oh what we gonna do and something so they went and talk so, uh they called neighbors, and there were a few of them. They called again someone in charge and because there were few people, so they suddenly you know started listening and they explained that how, that okay kids we understand that kids can't play, but we you just blocked uh only access we have to our buildings. Can you do something with to access because we cannot uh, go to the street because our buildings are at behind behind uh, police station, and we have only access through the police station gateway. I tried to ask Dad, how, war what is going to be. Uh, he said uh, that it's, it's not going to be long. It's going to be like him being in, in Czechoslovakia. It's going to be just a few months and back. I remember him saying to Mom, but it's going to be like maybe f- six weeks or something and it's done. He hoped. But it was different story. So that day, I remember us, you know, having opportunity to, to, you know, being great day for snow play, you know, play with snow. And it's been spoiled by the uh, police or, let's say, suppression forces. It's perspective of the, you know, 10, 11 years old. Yeah, mom, because we were talking later, uh, I mean, years later, mom was really scared that something going to happen. Uh, why she was scared? Because my granddad, her dad, worked and was retired with the security forces. And she knew that lots of people were disappeared without a trace in the past, in the 50s, 60s. And she knew from her dad, who was maybe involved, maybe not. Because I'd never, I'd never get to this bottom. But she knew that this is quite grave danger if it goes this way then following day following days i think there was gossip that russians gonna get into the poland invade
2: um i was going to say you you had a great story from this time about your dad and some coke yes yes it's just what we mean by coke is um the stuff that you use for a fire not the drink or the drug
0: <laughs> yes uh, it was chaotic time when they introduced martial law, uh, and it was harsh winter, so you have to heat your home. In our home, we had central heating, which uh, was f- fueled by coke. We were running low even before uh, December. And finally, my Dad, as I said, loads of stuff com commodities were regulated by state, so you had it, it doesn't you could have money but doesn't mean you can get it because you had to have extra vulture for this so finally, my dad got before even Marshall was introduced uh, this vulture for fine, for five tons of uh, coke it was a week later after Marshall was introduced. Uh, he went to town to organize and to buy uh, five tons of coke. And he agreed with the local uh, people that uh, they're going to deliver uh, coke to our home. So he organized a truck, lorry, uh, to deliver. Gave them uh, address, but they couldn't figure out where is it. As I said earlier, our buildings were not directly Within on a the street, they were in a back ground backyard of the police station, so they're not visible, and no one knew the name uh, numbers of this building. My dad said, "Okay, I'm gonna go with you in a uh, truck, uh, in a lorry, and show you how to get there." So they're driving with this five tons of uh, coke, and they approaching street, and as I. I said, gateway, uh, which we used to go to our house, uh, was shed, was the gateway to police station, big one. And in front of gateway, you have two armed, you know, uh, figures, uh, look, yeah, soldiers, like. And my dad said, you know, they approaching the police station, and my dad said, okay, please turn this way, and pointing at the gateway. And the driver just look at my dad with eyes like bloody, I don't know, one dollar coin, big eyes, you know, scared and said, very heavy swearing, you fucking what do you think you're gonna uh, arrest me because he was convinced that my dad was provocateur of secret police, who tried to nick him for selling like extra, I don't know, one ton of coke or something. Uh, he said to my dad, you idiot, you know, you, you could do whatever you, you want with your call, but I'm not driving there. And he just put foot on a speed, you know, pedal and drive quick in the next to the police station, just quick through the street to disappear from the you know, with my dad. He was so convinced when my dad worked for police that my dad had to, came back following day with big two bottles of vodka to apologize and to explain that the only way to get to our houses is to the police backyard.
2: Hello, I'm Craig Donald from Aberdeen, and I support Cold War Conversations with a monthly donation because it marries interesting historical content with fantastic storytelling. Ian is a great gift as an interviewer. He knows his subjects so that the conversations are meaningful but he also allows guests to tell their own story. Cold War Conversations is part of my weekly routine, and I would urge you to make it part of yours. Want to be like Craig and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War? As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free. You'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more or follow the link in the episode information. Did you see any solidarity demonstrations or anything like that during that period or was it quite quiet in your town as far as any dissent?
0: Oh no, in the beginning there were a few, yes. In the market square, um, uh, our town, Yavor is typical like german town you have market square uh, surrounded by big you know buildings uh, from each side and market town square quite big i can and there's monu- there's monument regarding uh, this area coming back to polish lands twice i remember i was witness because people uh, yeah, active members were gathering in the front of this uh, monument, but loads of bystanders, uh, because our this market allowed loads of bystanders. Uh, let's say semi hiding those who were scared of uh, being exposed as uh, anti communists in terms of business. You know, some people didn't want to fall out with authorities, so. They were like bystanders. They pretend to be bystanders, but at the same time, being there, they were demonstrating support. Once, I remember, they were not lasting long, this demonstration. Police, they were arrived quick and nicked them very quickly. It happens once, I was going somewhere, and then... I've noticed, oh, there's lots of people on the market square, so let's see what's going on. So I was witness, and it was like a week after martial law happened. So it's still December, before Christmas time, I think now. And another one in January, I was in a shop somewhere, and someone I've overheard that it's going to be something, you know, in q So I I was there for purpose. There was lots of people bystanders, as I said, gathering earlier. Then these few brave uh, appeared, and I didn't see how it ended. Obviously, they were nicked, because someone grabbed me from behind, and it was my mom, which I got massive blocking. I didn't know what for, because I said I did nothing wrong, something. I was dragged home by mom, Even I was eleven years, quite big lad already, but and that most humiliating thing was actually dragging by her, you know, by because mum dragged me home, and it was most humiliating. And at home, I was shouted. I mean, mum shouted at me that I'm totally brainless, stupid, idiot, because they do they do photographs, and that way I can put. Some family in kind of trouble. When my mom and dad talk, it was always they, someone they will do photographs, surveillance you, uh, monitor you, that invisible force who looking at you.
2: Yeah, and she's worried about her job as well. Yes, isn't she. Um,
0: yes, because she was part of uh, the system, uh, and she had already kind of position within the system, uh, you know, as an inspector of nurseries and primary education in our district. So she was uh, quite scared of losing her job. Could you
2: travel very far in that period or were there checkpoints on the
0: roads? At the beginning, there were checkpoints just around the corner, literally, in a town on the uh, outskirts of town, there were checkpoints. You have to have special pass to go further. But I mean, outside of town, it means you couldn't couldn't go even to the nearest village. You have to have uh, this pass, and to get pass on the beginning, my mom was actually worried about her dad, that one retired security, you know, uh, officer. Uh, how he gonna cope or something, they lived in a village near, well, not nearby, 10 miles from Yabor. Uh, so, to get this pass, you had to have several stamps from different offices. I mean, police, local authorities, something else, I can't remember what. So, it was quite complicated on, on the very beginning because. I'm talking about first weeks of this martial law. Then situation is, but first weeks were really difficult to to move around, really difficult. On a distance of 10 miles, we had three checkpoints uh, when we were traveling. In deep snow, in this Fiat, you know, one to six, going there, and we had this three checkpoints. And most of this, they, they were checking, actually, if we smuggling anything. I mean, smuggling, it's not whip, people think weapons or something. No, smuggling like half of pig, you know, f- from slaughter. Uh, there were shortages of food. So people were smuggling food from villages to the town in a barter exchange for something else. I think for sugar, mostly. And uh, uh, So the most popular uh, mean of Good for banter was actually sugar, cigarettes, vodka. Uh, In
2: exchange, all the basic staples.
0: (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. And my dad, because he didn't smoke, and on this Russian in book, he always got uh, you had cigarettes. He converted one of the drawers for stash for cigarettes, and it was his currency. If he wants to get something, and I'm talking about the first months after this martial law, money became quite useless. You know, money as a currency, they were worthless because no one really wanted, unless it was Western currency like dollars, pounds. Oh yeah, so it, you you talk different way, but usually it was. Uh, Banter exchange for cigarettes, uh, alcohol, uh, petrol was one of these commodities everyone wanted, and sugar. Or you could exchange even Russian book coupons. Uh, Russian book coupons became quite of currency. The Polish economy had sort of
2: fallen apart by the early 80s. So there were shortages of so many things that you were having to barter. To get hold of yes things,
0: it started to fall apart uh, from '78, I think, mm. from late '78. It, it starts showing signs of pop collapse. But eight, uh, yeah, uh, 1980, 81, when they introduced this law with lockdown, and it totally it's gone. It's gone. We had like no economy anymore. You go to the shops literally empty shelves, just like display of furniture, Cues to the shops, massive. Uh, well, if you can imagine like 200 yards queue. Uh, in the summertime, they used to uh, bring from Soviet Union, Soviet Union tried to ease our situation uh, to avoid un- public anger. So we used we get from Soviet Union extra uh, melons, uh, uh, some citrus, uh, you know, that kind of uh, fruits to East, you know, but it was not enough. And it was gossip, oh, this shop uh, on that day at a particular hour will have extra supply of, I remember it was melons, our neighbor. Uh, told me mom that they're gonna have melons on particular day because she worked there so following day my mom sent me to stay in a queue uh, you just like uh, people used to send their kids to st- you know to stay in a queue to uh, and then afternoon we were swap over with our parents so my mom came to buy just bloody one melon it's unbelievable, you know, but shortages, how, how yeah, how it, how it can be. 1983,
2: the curfews removed, and uh, you mentioned earlier about your grandmother being a forced labor worker in Germany during World War Two, and uh, you take her to a visit to Dresden which was where she was where she was a forced
0: laborer can you tell me about that yes uh, my grandma from my uh, she was taken as a forced laborer when she was 13 or 12 some very young girl uh, to help in uh, some farm in germany but because she was quite fragile and not used to hard farmer work so once she was in germany in 1940 41, someone decided to swap her over with, and she became cook assistant in kitchen in Köln, I think Köln, she said Köln and Düsseldorf area. And she worked in, uh, ki- as a kitchen assistant there and waitress as a young girl. Uh, she up quickly and uh, German, so she learned German quite quick. Uh, the owner of the business was the old couple, so they started to treat her as a uh, daughter, really, because she, they like her, and they treat they treat her quite all right uh, on the same terms like uh, German workers there. And she was there till 1944. In 1944, uh, there was big bombardment of uh, allies in this area and she she thought okay i'm gonna escape i'm going back to Poland to family and sh- she said she always w- repeating that uh, listen i was young i was 15 years old not realized danger i decide okay i'm going to back to poland i'm i'm fed up with this uh, i'm going and she was confident, you know, in her German. So she uh, took a train without ticket, without anything, going to the way, uh, to the east part of Germany. And she she sit in a carriage, confident, confident, and let's go. And she said her travel last quite long because she got involved in talk with uh, co passengers, Germans. No one realized that she's forced labor. Uh, just her confidence uh, pays, you know. And she managed to get to the Dresden area and she got off the carriage uh, on a station. And there was patrol of po- uh, police, German Rice Police, and asking for papers. And she said, and she was uh, again confident. She said, uh, I have no papers, and she said, "I have no p- so. Where are you from? Oh, uh, what you?" D-? And she said, "I'm forced labor, and I don't know what to do because uh, my uh, how to say master's business was bombed, Robert, and they died, and I'm only one, and I don't know what to do. Some wander around, and if you can't find me another place, that's fine." So she was taken to police station on police. The head of police or whoever was how to say running this case you don't do anything yourself we are the one who find uh, to work for you not yourself because they believed she really looked for for job so she was so she stayed in dresden she was allocated again as a uh, as assist, uh, assistant to uh, some cafe restaurant in uh, dresden square town square she worked there with she said there was another one, a false labor from, from the Netherlands, with her, and two Russian girls. Because, uh, she said, this restaurant a cafe was quite big, and they used to uh, come uh, like lots of local elderly residents there for dinners and tea, uh, and serving. It was a restaurant and ke- cellar, cellar, f- like two levels. It was really busy, but she again she had room uh, with uh, I mean uh, the girl from Netherlands, and they were getting on very well. Unfortunately, the bombing from February in nineteen forty five, they uh, how to say owners of the business and uh, German staff they had allocated like uh, shelters, so they. I also told them, you know, uh, the forced labor staff, that they have to go with them. But my my grandma decided, no, I know better, you know, and she just like, run away, escape. It was uh, just before bombing started. People were running, you know, all over the place from one area to another, just like bumping on each other. And she said that as soon as she got to the other side of the town square bombs started to drop and exploding and she got hit by some brick or something from falling building and she lost conscious. when she wake up uh, it was already bright day uh, light and she said smell was, but not smell like we think about bodies it's just like she said like burning plastic and she got got up and couldn't move arm because and she said it was like open wound from burning stuff and it still still had like wooden or something stuck in her arm. But she could walk. Everything else was okay. She was. She said she looked from dust, like white person, like ghost, full dust. And then uh, some. Uh, Firefighters, or she said, or some others people in uniform, like firefighters, came and asking her, said that she was from that place and so, and he just pointed out, and it was nothing there; it was like empty place, leveled down completely this part of town, and so she went there, and it was just a pile of rubble, and she said. Even this uh, shelter where it's supposed to go, everyone was uh, collapsed and she said everyone died, I I bet she everyone died from, you know, this place. And she said she was marching to the river quite slow, she said it was painful, slow walk to the river, half day and it was from town center to the river it's not far it's short distance but for her it was like half day painful walk because she couldn't barely move and it was field hospital uh, set up quickly by germans and she said one thing i still remember they didn't ask who i am from they treat everyone as it goes no they didn't make any difference there's lots and she said she said like it was people to the horizon, loads of people to the horizon. And they moved people across the river, across the bank. Uh, Soon, the same day, she was moved to another field hospital where there was no tents, just like people were laying on a bare ground. She was told to stay there. She stayed there for two days because uh, dressing uh, for her wound, you know, had to change. And then, Some doctor or whoever is German said, "Okay, you you go where you want. I'm not gonna tell anything. Just it was time when no one cared about if she was false labor or not. Uh, Germans were busy with their own." I said, "Okay, go." And she walked literally from Dresden to Poland. She she was given even bicycle by this doctor. On bicycle, tried to go, but bicycle was stolen. Still in Germ- well, in still Germany, but by Polish army. She was Paul, you know, Polish, <laughs> coming back home to Poland, and the Polish communist army was, you know, approaching. Uh, and, and what they did, she said, "Oh, lucky I wasn't raped, right, but they stole my bike." So she walked further down and was given leave by some uh, people from. Uh, Another Polish, you know, people from this Polish army, and finally she get
2: to Poland. It's now 1983 and martial law has ended in Poland. The Polish authorities are now allowing their citizens to travel abroad to selected countries.
0: We could go only to Bulgaria, you know, other communists. But it was something. East Germany was just around the corner, really, 100 miles. And we thought, okay, we not let's say we we have opportunity, we have passports. Let's get grandma. She talked a few times about Dresden. Let's go to Dresden. It was short day trip. I I never been to Dresden before, so I didn't know how it is. First thing we went to uh, Zwinger to uh, this Baroque palace. You know to see some some. And then with grandma, we went to the sen- town center and she was quite quiet all the time. And suddenly she said, no, it's not Dresden. And we said, hang on, we are in Dresden. We are right now in ten- town center. And she, st- she still looked, no, it's not Dresden. You took me somewhere else. It's not Dresden. A few times we try, but she was adamant, it's not Dresden, end of. And she said, it's, it's Germany. Yeah, she spoke with people in you know, the German, uh, you know, German people. Uh, quite friendly. And, and she was really live, you know. I, I didn't understand German by then, I didn't, because I didn't learn. But I tell you, fluent German, she spoke with these people. And it was, she was, came to a life. I've never seen her, as a remember. It was only time when she was really sparkly, you know, bright eyes, uh, talking, driving gestures, And she was really happy there, really. But then we came back, and after we came back, it was now our next visit to grandma, when she actually, the first time and the only time when she told us in very bright, picture, very bright colors picture, how it was, you know, how she survived, how she was lucky, because it was pure luck. Uh, and she sh- showed us this scar, you know, scar. Since then, I think only once more, she said about Dresden, it was when uh, my cousin took her in 90s to Dresden. And Dresden was rebuilt by then. And she she suddenly said, oh, I remember this was there. And our restaurant was there. But building is different. Because apparently, Dresden was partially rebuilt. So she could navigate herself. And she started remembering, you know, uh, even she said name of this restaurant, and, and oh, it was passage there. She said, but street is different. In the 80s, when Dresden was still in the rubble, she said, it's not Dresden, it's not my town.
2: Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. The Cold War conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week.